Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How are you guys hanging in there? Thanks for tuning in for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I am Kevin Weber, and I am still self-quarantining, um, at least through the end of April. That is the the governor's order here in the state of Michigan. I'm sure similar things are happening with lots of you out there in your states. Um, we've lost, you know, the college season already. We've lost the entire high school season. As you might recall, I am a, a signer for um, travel baseball, some tournaments, but mainly this big travel league that has like over 100 teams here in West Michigan. And I've been trying to input those, well, not trying to, I mean, I have been inputting those into Arbiter and getting ready to assign them. And then just a few days ago, we had this extended government order was supposed to uh, end on the 13th. And then it got extended till the end of the month. And so they were hoping to start playing games the first week of May. I talked with the, the guys that run the league. And uh, we're just kind of on hold a little bit right now and see how things go. Really hoping that happens, you know. I know I want to get back on the baseball field. I mean, when it's safe. I understand why we're doing what we're doing. But man, it sure would be nice if this virus would work its way out and... Um, that we could have some semblance of normalcy. I don't know if we'll ever really have the same thing again, but man, we're going to appreciate when we're back out there. I'll tell you that. So I've got a few interesting things for you. Um, you know, as usual, I've got an umpire spotlight this time. Um, old school major league umpire, Cy Ringler. And uh, also I got a couple questions that came in this week, and that's going to be um, most of the things I talk about today. Uh, Todd Skeen I wrote me an email and also left a voicemail about a, a unique infield fly rule that uh, we'll look at the situation and uh, how he ruled and, and how we all can learn a little bit from that. I know it, it could have very easily thrown me off, and I'm sure a lot of you out there, the thing that kind of happened to him. Um, also, I got an email from Troy Webb about uh, you know some things I might be able to do on the show um, during this quarantine time that's, that I will address. 
And, you know, self-employment, um, that's what umpires are. We're independent contractors. There's been some things passed as far as the federal government and some state governments that might help you if, uh, if you are in particular a full-time uh, official, you know, like it's your year-round job. So we'll see how uh, that all goes. Um, and I'll talk about the things that they're doing here in the state of Michigan. Um, so there are some similarities and differences to wherever you might be uh, living. But if you live in the state of Michigan, it'll definitely be really good information. And if you don't, then you can ask your state officials uh, what they're doing to try to help people out, especially if you're one of those people that needs it. So that that's you know that's what I got going on, right? Um, I think it's a pretty good show. Um, sit back and uh, take a listen, get your mind off all the craziness that's going on in the world right now, and think a little bit about some umpiring and and maybe get a little bit better. On uh, this week's episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. This past week, I got an interesting email from Todd Skeen, an umpire who had a unique situation involving an infield fly situation. Uh, we emailed back and forth, and I finally asked Todd to uh, call in to the show or go onto the Anchor app or onto the Anchor website and for my show, The Hammer. And leave uh, a voice message, which he did. And I'm going to play that momentarily. Um, And he will describe what the situation was. So remember a couple things about infield flies. Um, It's kind of, um, well, I kind of learned, this is, you know, I'm going to mention Nick Sweeney again here um, in a a minute um, in my response to this situation. But I learned from Nick that, you know, there are responsibilities, um, at least the way, the professional umpires are trained, I guess, uh, for who takes what for um, for infield flies. I know that if you see it, you should call it. If um, a guy kind of misses it, you know, your partner or partners, if you're working with three or four guys, um, then you got to call it, right? So if it's on the line, third baseline, first baseline, and it could be fair or foul, then obviously that is the home plate umpire's responsibility. He should uh, be pointing uh, once the ball um, is clearly, you know, reaching an apex and you made a good judgment on it and you point and, and yell as loud as you can, infield fly if fair, right? And, of course, if it hits foul, then it's just foul ball, right? Um, that's your job. Now, if you're working, you know, you're working uh, the bases and your home plate umpire brain farts and doesn't call it, then then you need to call it, right? It's still an infield fly just because, you know, he, you know, he missed it, right? So be ready to do that if you have to, but give him the opportunity to do that. On the flip side, and um, I talked about this with Nick before, and I think another umpire did this. I don't think I did it to him. I, I don't think so, though I could have before I knew this. Um, if it's on the infield, um, you know, not, you know, potentially fair or foul, then the main responsibility is for that uh, base umpire to make that call first. Now, again, if you're the plate umpire and the guy seems to brain fart on it and it's clearly in your mind an infield fly, then then get it. You know, make sure you get the call right. But, you know, he's kind of got first responsibility of the call. And then you can echo him. All right. And both guys can echo the other guys. Apparently, this is um, this is the way that uh, uh, pros, at least some pros, um, as far as I know, are taught. And I think it's a, a good way to look at it um, and uh, something to talk about in pregame. Um how you're going to handle infield flies. Infield flies kind of are streaky. I don't know. 
Well, at least they seem that way to me. Sometimes, man, you might umpire a whole bunch of games in one week and you never get one infield fly. And then the next week, you get one almost every game. You know, it's just kind of the way it is. I don't think the infield fly is a particularly difficult call most of the time. Um, it does get tricky, like we'll see in this situation, when it's a potential uh, fair foul. But anyway, um, I think this is a very unique and interesting situation that could happen to any of us. And um, one that we want to get right if uh, we ever have it. So I'll let Todd explain the situation. Kevin, come across a weird play last year that I want to go over with you. Runners on first and second, one out. Batter hits a pop fly in foul territory. Uh, first baseman moves over uh, to field the ball. I point in the air. Home plate calls infield fly if fair. Uh, on this day, the wind was blowing a little bit, so it drift. the ball drifts back into fair territory, hits the runner on top of the head. Uh, there was a little bit of contact between the first baseman and the runner um, while he was trying to field it. Ball bounces to the middle of the field. S both runners take off. Second baseman fields it and ends up back picking the kid at third who rounded a little hard. Uh, after the inning was over, I realized I had probably made the wrong call. I uh, want to know your thoughts on it. Thank you. Well, Todd, that is a very interesting play. Obviously, one that doesn't happen too often. And I appreciate you sharing it with uh, me and, and you know, the, the Hammer community. Um, it's always great when an umpire can, you know, realize that, hey, maybe I missed something. I want to learn something from this. And you've got the confidence to um, ask people about it. Sometimes people... They just like, I don't know, they don't want to admit that they maybe made a mistake. We're all human. We, you know, we we can mess things up, especially those kind of strange plays like this one um, that, you know, you might see once in your umpiring career, maybe twice, I, I guess. I mean, if that happened to you two times, that'd be crazy, I think. Um, but it's good. I mean, you know, it, when we talk about this, um, everybody out there that's listening, if you ever have a play like this happen, you're going to get it right. That's why we need to talk about it, right? So when I first uh, read this, because you sent me the email about it before you sent in the voicemail, I thought that, um, you know, well, I knew that the batter's out. I mean, if the ball's fair, you know, if it's on the line, you said, if you'll fly fair, the home plate umpire called it correctly like he did, uh, and it hits him, then um, I'm like, well, that batter is out. And the only situation, and hopefully people realize this, but if you don't, I guess we're going to learn some stuff here. The only situation where a base is like a safe haven is on an infield fly because, you know, they've got nowhere to go, right? So they can be there. Now, they can't be interfering, all right? Um, and you said there was some contact there. So, I mean, that would be your judgment if there was interference um, because if he does interfere with him and his ability to make the catch, because, you know, still the ball could be fair or foul. If he catches a foul ball, he's got he's got a right to try to catch a foul ball. Can't A guy can't be on a safe haven on the base there on first base and, you know, kind of bump the guy so he doesn't catch the foul ball because then that runner would be out, all right? Um, and then you'd have to, well, you'd have a whole other situation there. But anyway, so it hits him on the head. My initial thing was I thought, is that a, the, the question here is that a, a live ball or is it a dead ball and at first I thought well the guy had the opportunity to make the catch um, 
maybe that's a live ball. It's just like if it passed an umpire um, and passed the initial fielder um, and then he didn't catch it. But in a way, I guess he didn't. Obviously, if we know, like, we got a runner on first base and there's a ground ball to second baseman and the runner from first is running and boom, ball hits him. Dead ball, he's out. Um, and the official score gives the, the guy that hit the ground ball a single. All right. And, and nobody can advance unless they're, you know, nobody advances. Right. They just go back to their bases. So in a way, it's kind of similar to that. So the ball should have been dead. That's the thing. So, um, of course, in your situation, uh, he picked up the, the second baseman, picked up the ball and back picked the kid rounding third because they, they all start moving, thinking that it's a live ball or whatever. I guess the correct call should have been that, um, you know, the ball was dead right away. You kill it, you put the hands up. And then you, you know, you make sure everybody realizes the ball was, you know, because it was fair. The batter's out. The guy remains at first. Anybody, any other runners, you know, if there were runners on base, they would go back to their original base at the time, um, you know, that it hit them, right? Um, or time of the pitch, actually. So that's easy to say now. Um, I talked to, uh, you know, some umpire colleagues. A guy that was um, Nick Sweeney, who was a a former professional umpire and really knows his stuff really well. And um, he also thought that maybe it was a live ball at the beginning. So he looked it up, you know, and of course we're all learning from this too. And he realized, yep, no, that's a dead ball there. Um, so, you know, that's an easy, easy one to miss. I wouldn't beat myself up about it. I know that it happened a while ago, so I'm sure you're over it now. And from the way it sounds there, Todd, um, you uh, probably didn't have any controversy over that nobody even came out because as is usually the case with most coaches and players and fans and everybody they don't know the rules anyway so it's not like it's that big a deal right um, as far as getting an argument about it and, and trying to defend what you called as I always say usually we get arguments on things that we are 100% certain that we got right and we know the rule um, and, and we know we nailed it and then guys argue about it and there's a big controversy and who knows, it might lead to an ejection. But on something like this where somebody would have a legitimate thing like, hey, man, that should be a dead ball, this and that. And you probably weren't 100% sure about it. You don't get anything. It's just a crazy way that it works. But anyway, this is uh, if you're looking at your federation rule book, that's what I looked at for this, too. And so did Nick. Um, it's under rule 8.4. OK, um, uh, look around page uh, like 55. It depends on what you know, edition you got, but that, that's going to be about where it is in the Federation rule book. All right. I really appreciate you sending in the voicemail, Todd. I, I urge other people to do similar things uh, with any kind of situation that they have, and I'd be happy to talk about it and, uh, and we can all learn from something, right? So sounds good. Uh, thanks for that. And um, if anybody has any questions or comments, feel free to send them my way. I realize that a lot of you are still in some dire straits as far as your income because of your lost income from umpiring. And um, there are there's lots of information out there and maybe some potential help. Uh, I think it's a state-by-state state situation. I know here in the state of Michigan, and, and this is on you know Easter Sunday that I'm talking, um, starting like this week, self-employed 
and um, other newly eligible workers can apply for um, the $600 federal payments uh, starting this next coming week. So this, I, I assume there's some similar types of things in other states, but this is what it is in the state of Michigan, and you need to check your particular state and your situation to see if you're eligible. My fear is that um, a lot of people maybe aren't eligible if they have a regular full-time job. I think that that might exclude a lot of people. Like for me, for example, I mean, I'm a full-time teacher, so I'm doing fine. You know, I mean, I can pay my bills, all right? Um, Yeah, there's money that I certainly, you know, count on from umpiring to use for certain things that I don't have. I'm sure just like you guys, but um, I'm going to survive without it. I'll just have to figure it out. You know, it's the way it goes. There are other people, though, I'm sure some of you out there, that maybe officiating is your full-time thing. You do baseball in the spring, but maybe in the winter you do basketball. And maybe in the fall you do football. And you basically, especially if you're in a warmer climate, um, but even here in Michigan, I guess you can do it, you umpire and officiate year-round. So if that's really how you pay your bills, then you definitely have to do something. There's probably something out there for you. Like here, Michigan self-employed workers, gig workers, and 1099 independent contractors and low-wage workers that are affected by uh, COVID-19 can apply for this federal pandemic unemployment assistance, the PUA, beginning Monday, April 13th here in the state of Michigan. And they got it all worked out. Now, this is under the Federal CARES Act. Uh, Workers on state unemployment have already begun to receive their $600 federal weekly payments in addition to their state uh, benefit amounts. Michigan is one of the first states to begin sending the $600 payment. So, again, maybe we're just a little ahead of the game here, uh, but hopefully similar programs will be available in other states. Um, So, anyway... The way that kind of works here, self-employed workers, gig workers, 1099 independent contractors, and low-wage workers can apply for federal benefits starting Monday, April 13th at 8 o'clock. We do it through michigan.gov slash UIA, um, and online is the fastest way, I guess, to do it. Um, and these people that I just mentioned, these uh, um, qu- people that might qualify who have previously applied for unemployment benefits have been, uh, if they've been denied, they should be should log in and they can do it. I guess they can still try to figure out if they can um, have some eligibility for this and get some of the benefits and maybe some of the money. So all newly eligible workers would need to provide like proof of income to receive the maximum amount that they're entitled. And this would include like your W-2s, your 1099 tax forms, your pay stubs. So that's the thing I worry about. You know, it's like, how do you prove that? Well, I mean, I can print off my arbiter sheet of all the games I lost, but I, I don't have like a 1099 form or a W-2 or a pay stub to prove that I lost that income because it, it never came to begin with. So I don't know how well that's going to work. Uh, I might just go on and look. I mean, I'm not planning on being able to get anything. Does I, I just like to see how it all works out. Anyway, um, so these workers uh, will begin receiving federal benefits as early as April 20th. After their bi-weekly certification, um, individuals on paid sick leave or other paid leave and those who have uh, the ability to telework with pay are not eligible for the PUA. So you certainly can't telework. 
uh, an umpire in a game. Though I'm sure some people think that we could, you know, with the you know new strike zone type things coming out and everything else. But uh, so yeah, maybe that works. All right. Um, so workers already collecting state unemployment benefits have begun receiving the $600 federal set amount in addition to up to $362 that they were previously eligible for. So I guess they get some more. Um, these payments are dispersed at the same time as their state benefits through direct deposit or credit and debit credit after the biweekly certification. So, you know, definitely if you are a full-time official, you got to look into this stuff in your state and see if you are eligible. And, and I hope you are because, you know, I, I don't want anybody to... Uh, to be uh, having a struggling time there with their, you know, bills and everything else out there. I mean, it's tough enough as it is with everything we got going on. So that's just some information that I've got here as far as what's happening in the state of Michigan. Like I say, I'm sure it's different in each state, but I'm I'm sure that there's a lot of similarities as well. You need to look at your um, state government websites and the federal websites and see if um, there's something that you might be able to get from it. I mean, I think everybody should do that. And um, the more um, officials do that, uh, the more likely they might be able to provide things for us. All right. So keep those things in mind and good luck with that if uh, you're somebody that's looking to do it. A few days ago, Troy Webb, who's a um, a friend of the show, uh, sent me an email and I appreciate that. He's uh, done that on a few occasions and has some interesting insights into things. Um, He was talking about, you know, how... How are we all dealing with this uh, pandemic situation when we're not able to get on the field and um, practice our craft? You know, because the way, the number one way you get better at umpiring is umpiring. I kind of relate it to like the Beatles. The Beatles did not become the Beatles before they went to Hamburg, Germany, and uh, played there night after night for a couple of years, you know, like eight, eight or you know, eight hours a night uh, playing everything that they knew and and learning new songs and just kind of going through like this, you know, trial by fire kind of thing. And that is the way you become a good umpire. I mean, you can't just work, you know, some games, some high school games or whatever in the spring and think, oh, I'm going to, you know, okay, there are a few exceptions. There are those kind of naturally gifted guys, you know, the, the one in a thousand kind of guys that are like that. But most of us, you need as, as many opportunities as possible to, um, well, to screw up, I guess. And, um, you know, the best time to do that is during the summer. <laughs> okay, and you might get people uh, upset with you, but usually during the school year, whether you're working high school ball or you're working um, collegiate ball or whatever, uh, those games mean a lot more to people and there are certain types of championships that have a certain meaning uh, on the line there. Um, if somebody doesn't win some summer tournament, I know mom and dad in the stands are all upset or something, but it's not like it's the end of the world or something. Um, that's a place to, to be able to make mistakes and learn from them and try not to make those mistakes again. But anyway, um, Troy was uh, saying, uh, th- here's a few things that he said in his email. He says, I'm writing because I want to offer some thoughts on umpiring and practice. I think we can all agree that umpire work like teaching and other crafts is a performance art we can study, but it is in the application that we learn the most. For this reason, we can learn a lot from kick calls more than we learn from easy, obvious calls. And I, we just discussed that moments ago, but I 100% agree. Since to this end, officials all over the country are being encouraged to continue to study and be ready for any opportunity. Um, 
So, you know, for whenever it's all clear, right, with the pandemic situation. He says uh, um, he'd drive anywhere to work a game at this point. I think a lot of us are like that, too. I mean, if somebody said, hey, there's a game three-hour drive away, you'd be like, okay, yeah, I'll be there, all right? So he was thinking after he was listening to some stuff on the podcast about studying now. And honestly, you know, there's only so much you can do that. Only so much, you know, book smart stuff that you can do. And uh, to be a good umpire, it's more than just being book smart. Hopefully we all realize that, right? So he says, I say all this because I don't think there is a lot for us to do regarding study and the unknown over summer ball is weighing heavily on my area. And that's the way it is everywhere. I mean, it's weighing heavily here in Michigan as well, right? And every place in the country. We're hoping for a June clearance. I believe he's down in like the New Mexico area, uh, somewhere around there, on the western side of the country, if I recall. Um, so he's hoping for that uh, to be back maybe, you know, by August. The schools should be back in session by August. That's what they're planning here. If things kind of clear out with this virus. Um, personally, uh, I, I'm hope I was hoping to start maybe the first week of May, maybe get some of my travel ball league that I assigned for games out there, maybe pick up a, one or two myself to get on the field. But now our stay at home order from the governor here in Michigan is uh, through the end of April. So I don't know how doable that is going to be. We're kind of on hold, even the games that I assign right now. Um, I'm hoping things turn around. We'll see how it goes. Right. Anyway, he said, therefore, I haven't asked, would you mind when you're done with the Michigan postseason test, which, by the way, I finished last week, consider uh, continuing a section on you know, what's the call or something like that? He says, I don't know, maybe even, hey, umpire, where you cover casebook scenarios, um, give the answers and compare it with real life situations that you or other umpires have experienced. And then maybe discuss the differences between Federation rules, OBR and NCAA. I uh, said, uh, your experience in rules knowledge would be interesting and informative. Just a thought to try and keep some application in our minds out here in the wasteland of empty fields. Honestly, I don't care how you do it, but I will miss you going over the test questions, which I understand that. I mean, you know, when I put together the test question situation, I've done the on a couple of occasions. Um, I, you know, I don't know how well-received things are, but I'm glad that people like them. I'm sure there's some of you that don't, and you probably skip over that part of the podcast or something, but that's fine too, man. You can do whatever you want. Um, I think we kind of hit on that a little bit, what you're asking for, Troy, uh, this week with uh, Todd Skeen's question about the infield fly. Um, that is a situation that we can all learn from, and that's what we have to do as umpires is talk about those things. Unfortunately, right now, we don't have crazy stuff happening to us that we can get with our colleagues and talk about and then um, hopefully get right uh, if we ever have that situation on the ball field. Hopefully sometime soon, though, that's coming. So anyway, to make a long story short, I will certainly do what I can to um, try to test your knowledge, to try to get you thinking, to try to put some scenarios out there, um, common ones and maybe not so common ones. Um, maybe get you thinking about your mechanics and how you do things and how you might improve those because that's how we get better, right? And then uh, when we get on the baseball field, hopefully sometime here in 2020, uh, we can put those things into practice and uh, be a little bit better umpires because that's really the main goal. Be a little bit better each time we're out on the ball field. This week's Umpire Spotlight 
is longtime National League umpire Cy Rigler. Uh, he was an umpire in the early 20th century, and uh, he grew up in and, and was born in Massillon, Ohio. He never played baseball like some other umpires did uh, in his younger days, although he did briefly play professional football. He was a tackle for the Massillon Tigers. This is, of course, pre-NFL days, back in like 1903. Also, when he was a young person, he worked as a uh, mechanic, uh, as a police officer, a fireman, and he was encouraged to work as an umpire because of his, uh, you know, thick build, uh, which people thought would serve well to quell the disputes on the field and and all that kind of stuff. He he worked for the local iron working, iron workers team and everything um, in his local days and his local teams, of course. He advanced quickly. Um, uh, as an umpire working in the Central League in 1904 at just the age of 22. And then in 1905, his um, great work was noted by scouts for then NL President Harry Pullman, and he was hired by the National League late in the 1906 season, becoming the youngest regular umpire in that league's history. Um, his first major league game was on September 27, 1906, uh, when the Brooklyn Dodgers visited the Chicago Cubs. And then he became a regular staff member for the National League. And remember, at this time, of course, the leagues were split in 1907. Now, traditionally, Bill Clem is credited with developing um, arm or hand signals, uh, you know, like for calling an out, calling a strike, calling a safe. Um, but on his own, Wrigler... Um, while working in the minor leagues in 1905, had kind of developed a practice of using arm signals to note balls and strikes so that you know people in the outfield uh, could more clearly follow the action. Um, by the time he got to the major leagues, he discovered that you know the practice was much more widespread. Um, so I guess it was just kind of a natural thing to do some kind of signals, um, and several people were doing it. Um, Bill Clem always gets the credit, but who knows if he was really the first person to do it. But Riggler um, kind of figured that out as well. All right. So, of course, that's very common now. We have our ways of uh, doing that correctly. And, um, you know, especially when it was early on, like when he first started umpiring, um, it was one umpire, even in you know major league games um, in the early, you know, 1906, 1907. Eventually, by the time he stopped umpiring in 1935, they were working three man. Riggler was not only a, a very good umpire, um, he had some other skills as well. Uh, he was excellent at designing uh, ballparks and um, the groundskeeping of ballparks, and he designed several around the country and in other countries as, as well, um, like in Latin America in the early 1900s, a lot of them down there, like or in Cuba, for example. In 1912, he was um, laying out the ball field for the University of Virginia, uh, when he was an assistant coach there. So he had some abilities as far as that. And he was scouting players. Uh, this was uh, permitted early on. Obviously, you can see the controversy in that. Like Epa Rixie, who was an excellent pitcher for a long time, he signed him for Philadelphia Phillies. I think he eventually played with the Cincinnati Reds. But anyway, um, that was a bit controversial because, you know, you sign some player for a team and then you're umpiring their game. Obviously, there's a bit of a, a conflict of interest there. Uh, but anyway, Riggler was known for his um, out, outgoing nature, um, his ability to let criticism roll off his back without becoming visibly irritated, which is a great trait for any umpire or any official. 
Um, and he allowed players and managers to kind of make their arguments and um, demonstrated a, a willingness to only eject people if they really deserved it, which is probably a good thing. Um, even though he was a big guy, I mean, he, you know, he looked like a left tackle, um, at least the equivalent of one back in his day. Um, he wasn't the kind of guy that was going to start something um, that wasn't necessarily in his nature. Of course, being an umpire for as long as he was, there were many interesting things that happened uh, during some of the games. Some of the more significant ones, there was one in 1917, May 1917. Fred Tony of the Cincinnati Reds and Hippo Vaughn of the Chicago Cubs uh, were you know, pitching um, against each other, and they both threw no hitters for nine innings. Um, Vaughn finally gave up two hits and a run in the 10th inning to take the loss. So um, that's pretty crazy if you think about it. I bet you that game went pretty quickly. Um, Riggler was also on the bases uh, in August 1922 when the Cubs defeated the Phillies 26-23 to in the highest scoring nine-inning game in history, which I'm sure that game was not very short. The most controversial call, or famous, I guess, or infamous, whatever way you want to put it, that uh, Wrigley ever made, uh, came in Game 3 of the 1925 World Series. That was between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Washington Senators. So with the Senators ahead by one run, uh, Washington outfielder Sam Rice uh, ran down a long drive by Pittsburgh's Earl Smith at the wall in right center field, and he tumbled into the temporary bleachers erected at Griffith Stadium. Um, after a short delay, Rice emerged from the crowd holding the ball. And Riggler called Smith out, and the ruling stood, uh, despite, obviously, a protest from Pittsburgh. Um, and a letter written by Rice to the Baseball Hall of Fame to be opened only upon his death, Rice stated unequivocally, at no time did I lose possession of the ball. So um, I don't know when when Sam Rice died and if, and if um, Riggler ever found out about that, but I'm sure he would appreciate it knowing that he got the call right. But uh, what else are you going to do with that? That's a crazy situation, right? I mean, if you don't see him lose possession of the ball, then how can you call it a no catch, right? Now, I mentioned that Riggler was not known for, you know, throwing people out of games and for being too uh, physical with people. I mean, they used to have fights and stuff, especially back in the early 1900s. But there was one kind of famous incident that happened in 1915. Um, it was a game between the Reds and the Cardinals at uh, Robinson Field. So in the seventh inning, Riggler overruled a call involving the Reds' Tommy Leach, who had been caught off second base um, as a result of the hidden ball trick. Uh, the field umpire, Bill Hart, he didn't see the play, but Riggler who was behind home plate, did, and he called Leach out. Now, that's a little crazy as far as mechanics nowadays and, and what the heck was the base umpire doing. But anyway, that's beside the point, right? Anyway, Reds manager Buck Herzog argued vehemently about this, and according to newspaper accounts, he shoved Riggler in the chest protector and he spiked him. So Riggler decked Herzog with one punch under the left eye. And then a riot ensued with spectators and players from both teams crowding around the combatants. And it took a dozen policemen to restore uh, peace. And Riggler and Herzog each were fined $5 um, in St. Louis Police Court. So um, a little bit different than what happens nowadays. But uh, that's the way baseball was back in that time. 
So Riggler officiated in 10 World Series. That's second only to Bill Clem's 18. He worked in 1910, 12, 13, 15, 17, 19, 1921, 25, 28, and 1930 World Series. And he was also one of the umpires in the first All-Star game in uh, 1933. And, you know, the stuff, when you were able to work those series, um, World Series, All-Star games, whatever, it it was 100% based on merit. Um, I know that it is now, but I think there's, you know, they try to rotate around a little bit more. Because, you know, guys are very capable. I'm sure anybody working in the major leagues could work a World Series, right? Um, when he retired, uh, from umpiring and he worked from 1906 to 1935, he totaled, uh, 4,144 games that ranked fourth in major league history and his 2,468 games behind the plate still place him third, uh, behind his NL contemporaries, Bill Clem and Hank O'Day. So Riggler is tied with O'Day for the second most world series, uh, with the 10 that he has, um, and like I said, he trails only Bill Clem's 18. And he has also been credited, you know, if you look at different umpiring um, informational books and articles with uh, using the arm signals and call, for calling balls and strikes and stuff. So he's not in the Hall of Fame, but, you know, certainly Cy Riggler could be somebody that could be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was a very um, important uh, umpire and did a lot of interesting things. He was um, uh, head of... Um, Promoted supervisor of NL, the NL staff in 1935 after Hank O'Day died. But uh, unfortunately for him, he never got the opportunity to really do anything there because just like less than two weeks later, he died himself um, after having surgery for a brain tumor. I'm sure that the brain surgery in 1935 was not quite as um, advanced as it might be nowadays. So he's only 53 years old. And um, maybe that hurt him a little bit as far as trying to get in the Hall of Fame, you know, because he didn't have. Um, that longevity after he retired. But anyway, a very interesting person, Cy Riggler, and uh, he's our umpire spotlight for this week. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. Hey, I appreciate you sticking with me to the end. Hopefully you did. And, uh, You'll be back next week for another episode. I've been pretty consistent tuning on an episode once a week, usually on Sundays if you notice, Uh, this being Easter weekend, uh, a little bit slower on the upload of it. But, uh, you know, I I know my numbers for my listeners have been down a little bit. I think guys are getting a little bit depressed out there. I said this last week. I see it again. Um, I saw a slight uptick. uh, But once we get back on, on the baseball field, um, and things are happening and guys are back in the swing of things, I think things might pick back up. I think it also affects because people are at home, maybe it's not as easy or as uh, the kind of way that they used to listen to podcasts, maybe listen in their car or on their, um, you know, earbuds or something when they're, when they're doing something, walking, running or something like that. So you can listen to the podcast, uh, on an Alexa device or other types of, I think, you know, Google Home and those other devices that they have too. If you say, tell it like, let's say it's an Alexa, Alexa, play The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Um, it will play it for you. So if you're just sitting around and you're doing some work at home and you want to listen to it, that's a good way to do it. And you can always tell it to like play the newest episode or whatever. 
if you got to stop it, um, it'll pick up usually where you left off. So a good way to do that if um, that's something that you have in your house and you're just kind of stuck there and you want to listen to this episode or past episodes, you can have it do previous episode, you know, you know, next episode, you can just tell it whatever you want to do and I'll kind of move it around. I've tested it out. So it works pretty well. I really like getting messages from people. Um, I really love the voice messages. It's great to have somebody else's voice and, uh, you know, you can say a lot in 60 seconds and pose some question or um, scenario or give some feedback or whatever you want to do. And um, hopefully it's something that I can use on the show and then we can, I can go from there like I did in this episode. I think that really helps out. It's kind of like a, I don't know, not really an interview, but a, a, a little bit like a call-in kind of thing, right? So feel free to jump on Facebook and send me a message through Facebook, The Hammer Podcast. Feel free to uh, email me at spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. And I usually respond back fairly quickly unless, you know, there's always some things going on and um, and try to get to anything somebody sends to me because I appreciate that. It's very valuable to me anytime I get some kind of feedback. So, hey, keep hanging in there. Uh, we'll get back out there sometime soon. And um, keep yourself ready. Keep yourself in shape too, guys. You know, the weather's getting nicer. I know it's hard with all the social distancing uh, sometimes, but, uh, you know, if you're a runner, be doing that. If you're a walker, be doing that. Doing your stretching, doing your weightlifting, uh, other cardiovascular things you got to do. Make sure you're in shape uh, so that when you get back out on the ball field, you're ready to go and you don't get yourself injured. All right. So keep that in mind as well. And until next week, keep calling strikes. <laughs>